morning. Let's go ahead and start with prayer, shall we? Father God, we just thank you that we were able to come this morning in worship, Lord, to see three uh, other souls proclaim your greatness, proclaim your lordship in their life. Lord, we're so thankful. And Lord, no doubt, even as we watch those baptisms, Lord, we think back to the time that you saved us. Lord, it brings just a deep sense of worship. Lord, I pray that uh, this time, uh, Lord, that we would walk out of here at the end, Lord, with a greater sense of who you are. Lord, that uh, we'd walk out with a, a greater sense of awe. Lord, and that it would propel us to continue to proclaim your gospel to the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before I get started too far this morning, I wanted to take a moment just as a brief introduction, uh, realizing that not all of you probably know who I am. So if you're new or been newer with us, I am the student pastor here at IBC. My name is Corey Durbin, and uh, I was thinking through this and uh, some interactions I've had with people since I've been here. And I said, you know what? I want to give a little glimpse, just a little taste, give you a little more understanding of what it means to be a youth pastor. What does it mean to be a student pastor? And, and uh, strangely enough, I found this picture uh, posted by some other youth pastors uh, going around on a forum, and uh, I was like, I identify so well with this. And if, if you look at this, it says, 30-year-old me around real adults, all right? This, <laughs> this is a cultural icon at the moment, little baby Yoda. And then 30-year-old me around teenagers, the wise old Yoda. And what I want to make sure you understand is that this is nothing to do with age, this is, if you've noticed that when I'm around adults, I'm a little weird, all right? Some of you in that conversation, you're like, I, there's just something strange about him. And, uh, and it's, it's, it is because I have chosen to spend most of my professional career with students, okay? And so that, that, is, that is who I uh, am with at all times. And so I saw that, and I was like, man, what a great insight. I totally identify with this. And so, um, so there you go, a little more insight to what it means to be a student pastor. And if you meet other student pastors, we're all weird. I mean, it's just, it's just true. All right, so we're going to be at Matthew 10, verse 26 to 33 this morning. Uh, to, to give a little context, uh, as we've gone back through this chapter and Pastor Thomas preached the last two sermons, uh, Jesus is sending the 12 out, and he's giving them instructions. He's saying, sending out, going to proclaim that the kingdom of God is near. And as Tom explained last week, it is with the expectation of persecution that the disciple goes out and shares this message that Christ has given them. And so for many of our passages, it starts with uh, the first verse, uh, so have or uh, therefore. And when I was in school, my professor always told me, if you come to a Bible passage that says therefore, you need to find out what it was there for. And so you got to go back a little bit. All right, that makes sense, right? We can't start with a therefore. And so I'd like to just actually back up a couple verses and start with verse 24. It says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Just to emphasize what Pastor Tom had preached to us last week, 
It's this amazing uh, truth that there were people that would call Jesus Satan. And I don't know about you, but that really strikes at my heart. I mean, I can't tell you how many times even in my own life where I'm participating in something that I know is the truth, that this is loving, and yet somebody would be on the opposite side of that saying, no, that is evil. Does that strike at your heart? And this is, this is what Jesus says. If they would call me Satan, the master of the house, if they would call me the master of the house, Satan, what more would they do for you? I actually believe that we are in a time in the U.S. today where this is illustrated quite blatantly. Um, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and it was just talking about how when we kind of look at our historical roots, even in the U.S. with Christianity, that Christian morality held the high ground. There was, there was not a higher morality, not that there still is, but w- Christians held the high ground. You know, it was so much so that if you were to testify in court, your hand was on the Bible. Testifying, so help me God. We had the high ground. And this podcast was talking about how recently, and very quickly within this last decade, it's as if the moral high ground was taken out from under us. Not to be replaced with some high, higher better morality, that's not what happened. It's that society has decided to reject the teachings of Scripture. And this cultural shift has happened. For me, growing up in the Midwest, Missouri, the Bible Belt, all right, and, and I tell you, it is, for those of you who have visited the Midwest, it is a, a stark cultural shift when you move over there and realize what the Bible Belt means you know, when I, I served at a church there in Missouri, there was literally five churches in one block, all right? And more churches around, but in our one little area, it was amazing. Anyway, church corner, that's what we called it. It was just five, five years ago, though, that something had happened in Missouri, and for the first time, I had heard Christianity being labeled as an extremist religion. They were starting to be rejected. And in fact, the teachings of Christ were now being called evil. And so we find ourselves in this rather quickly changing cultural moment. And we shouldn't be surprised, of course. Because Jesus said this would happen. In fact, they said it about Jesus first. And so if you have your outline in your uh, bulletin there, we're going to fill out that first point there. Just to recap last week, the point is we should expect persecution as followers of Jesus. We should expect persecution as followers of Jesus. And so with that in the background, knowing that, uh, that Jesus says persecution's coming, if you're going to live and identify with me, you will be persecuted because I was persecuted, because ultimately he was killed. Uh, how do we respond to this reality? Right? The reality that the more we identify and align ourselves with Christ, the more the world is going to reject us. And maybe some of you came out of service last week going... <laughs> Boy, that was grim. We're going to be persecuted. Maybe you think of sit down, think, thought about it, and go, well, how do I follow Jesus and minimize the persecution? Maybe get rid of it altogether. 
Maybe I should respond to this reality by just keeping my faith to myself. Maybe if I just do my best to love people, keep my head down, not to get too bold in my speech or actions, maybe then I'll avoid persecution. After all, actions speak louder than words, right? But if we were to look into our scripture and go to verse 27, verse 27 of Matthew 10 says, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetop. This doesn't sound like keeping your head low. Not keeping it to yourself. In fact, to even entertain the thought of trying to keep our faith to ourselves, we have to admit at least one thing. What is driving this thought? And honestly, if we're honest, this response is motivated by fear. Fear of persecution. Fear about the ramifications of what living out our faith, living our lives aligned with Jesus, fear of what that means publicly. But I think Jesus anticipated this. And Jesus actually tells us three times in this section of scripture to respond to persecution without fear. It's our next item. We are told to respond to persecution without fear. Three times Jesus says, fear not. I want to go ahead and give you the next point. Now, at this point, some of you guys are going, we're blowing through this outline. All right, we're going to be out in 10 minutes. We're going to slow down, don't worry. (laughs) Three times Jesus says, fear not. The first one, we do not fear people because we view this life with eternity in mind. Verse 26 says, so have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. It recalls to me the conversations that I've had, where, religious conversations, where I'm trying, somebody's trying to put me on the defensive. Prove to me your God is real. Prove to me this is real. And the reality is, we know this, that there are believers and that there are unbelievers. There are those who God has opened their eyes and they see clearly and there are those whose eyes are still shut. In the end, God says he will reveal all. Things that were falsely called true and good will be exposed for the evil that they are. A life lived in submission to God, a life that was mocked and ridiculed, it'll be lifted up. You may have family members, friends, coworkers, people you would say enemies who attack you, who have not believed the gospel now, and we pray certainly that they would. But in the end, we will all be exposed to the truth. It'll all be revealed. And we get put in this position, what I love about this verse is we don't necessarily have to prove our beliefs to be true. In the end, we're not going to be proven anything. God will. God will be revealing this to all people. And we we think about verse 26, it says, we fear not, excuse me, 
Verse 26, so have no fear of them for nothing that's covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. If we go back and look at the context, when we understand that Jesus is sending the disciples out to actual towns and cities, they are proclaiming this message, and some of them, if not all of them, were no doubtably scoffed at. They weren't all accepted. Not everybody accepted the message the disciples had given. And yet, later on in Matthew, we see that Jesus visited these cities. Can you imagine the scoffers? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus is coming. No, we don't believe in your God. All of a sudden, Jesus shows up, and he's healing people, praying with people, teaching people, in front of the same people that scoffed at the disciples. kind of blows me away, right? Can you see the position? And just to think that one day, it'll be the same for us. God will reveal all. We go to verse 28. It says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Verse number... uh, Point number two there, we do not fear people because people are limited to what they can do. We do not fear people because people are limited to what they can do. You know, I think we do give people too much power. We do. I think on the flip side of that, we don't recognize God for who he is. And so we have too high view of people and too low view of God. How many decisions have we made in our lives that were based on what people would think? How people would respond? Decisions that really, and maybe we even decided, weren't ultimately for our good, but they were decided because of something somebody else thought. How often are we in a situation where we doubt whether or not God could even help us? You know, as I was thinking about this, not fearing man, but fearing God, for he can kill the body and soul, I was thinking about just several different stories in the Bible came up of where man interacted with God on a face-to-face level. Gave them, God, God sort of gave a correction in their view of him. If you'd like, you don't have to, but I'm going to go to Isaiah 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Start in the verse 1. This may be very familiar. It says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. When I teach this to youth, I just say, hey, close your eyes. Think of, a, think of this room here. We're sitting before the throne of God and he is so large that the hem of his robe fills the sanctuary. Huge. Verse two says, Seraphim were standing above him. They they each had six wings and two they covered their faces and two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the earth. 
The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. I, uh, <laughs> have you ever been in a situation where everybody in the room knew what to do except for you? Know what I'm talking about? You walk in, maybe it's a meeting, everybody knows how that meeting is supposed to go, and there's you in the corner awkwardly, <laughs> I don't know what to do. Okay? <laughs> this is Isaiah, okay? He is standing before the throne of God and he's viewing it. God is seated on his throne. And you have these amazing creatures with six wings. And when they speak, the temple shakes. That is a powerful creature. They'd have to turn the sound way up on my microphone for me to even begin to come close to that. We're not going to do that as an illustration. Don't worry. And these creatures, however powerful they are, they have chosen to cover their face and to cover their bodies with the wings. They dare not look at the Lord of armies seated on his throne. And Isaiah, man, the point of realization, right? The point of understanding. Woe is me. Uh, When he said that, guys, it wasn't woe is me. It was woe is me. For my eyes have seen the Lord of armies. I am ruined. I think what we're going to see and what we've seen biblically This thing happens any time that man is put in front of God. A correction happens, a right view of who God is and a right view of who man is. And he says here, for I am a man of unclean lips. Not that just that he's unclean, not that he is sinful, but he lives among a people of unclean lips. He has no pedigree. He has nothing to back him up to say, I'm good, I, I have the ability to stand before you, God. He realizes his sin immediately. Let's jump over to Job. Boy, this conversation at the end of the Job. How would you like to be a fly on the wall? I'm going to go to Job 38. I'm just going to read a, a snippet from God speaking to Job. Job 38, verses 1 through 13. Then the Lord answered Job from a whirlwind. He said, Who is this that obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations? Or who laid its cornerstone? 
while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who enclosed the sea behind the doors when it burst through the, from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and total darkness its blanket? When I determined its boundaries and put its bars and doors in place? When I declared, you may come this far, but no farther. Your proud waves stop here. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning or assigned the dawn its place? So it may seize the edges of the earth and shake the wicked out of it. And we finally get a response from Job in Job 40. I'm just going to read verse 4. This is how Job responds to this. I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. God, I'm not just going to shut up right now. I'm going to make sure that I don't say another word. I am so insignificant. Again, a correction. A right view of who God is and a right view of who man is. I want to give you one more illustration. This is actually one of my favorite stories from the Bible, and and it's the call of Peter. It comes from Luke 5, or at least the version uh, I'll be speaking from. Luke 5, verse 4. And we know the story. Jesus says to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. I love this. Peter was a professional fisherman. Jesus, at least to Peter's knowledge, was not. Put down your nets. Peter replies, Master, we have toiled all night. Lord, the fish aren't biting. We know we're not going to catch anything right now. But he says, at your word, I will let down the nets. And in verse 6, we say, when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them, and they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. Can you imagine? <laughs> what a, what a fishtail. The boat is sinking. And immediately, Peter's boat is also sinking. That's what I gather from this. Jesus is on the boat, and Peter falls to his knees. And it's not with a bucket to start getting the water out. He falls to his knees and he says to Jesus, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And again, I don't think when he says this, he was just saying it. I actually gather because of Jesus' response that Peter is in fear of his life. Jesus says to Peter, Do not be afraid. Peter had a moment where at first he was just fishing, sitting with a great teacher. The teacher asks to throw the net out, and out of respect, he complies. I will throw this net out. Nothing in Peter at that moment revealed to him who he was, other than he knew he was a fisherman. And then a miracle happens. And Peter 
realizes that he is standing before God Almighty. And what's the first thing that comes to mind? As we saw in Isaiah, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It's like I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. But Jesus says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. The reason why I shared these three stories, what I hope you gather from this is to recognize God for who he is and people for who they are. We do not fear man because man can only do so much. They can only kill the body but God could kill the soul. Now when I say that, some of you may think this sounds like a scare tactic. Be, be fearful of the one who can do more. I don't think that's what's going on here. I actually find great comfort in this. This is all that man can do. And we, I say that and I don't take death lightly. I don't. But they are limited. But they do not have the final say. They can kill me, but they do not have the final say over me, over my soul. But my God does have the final say. And he says that I have been put to death, that I've been put to death with Christ, and my life has been raised with his. And so we can proclaim from the housetops, and we do so without abandon. No fear of man, because what can they do? Kill me? My God raises people from the dead. So we do not fear people because people are limited in what they can do. If we go down here to verse, excuse me, point three. Point three is we do not fear people because God values his children. Our third verse here, our third do not fear is found in this last section, verses 29 through 32. It says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. Starts off with this question, verse 29 there, begins with the question, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Out of all of the fowl available for purchase during Jesus' time, the sparrow would have been the cheapest. All right, it's the most plentiful bird. And it is, it's an interesting question. Are not two sparrows worth a penny? Or, or a copper coin, as some's translated. That's not a lot of money. <laughs> copper coin for two sparrows. In fact, we even see other biblical uh, places where two sparrows are sold, not sold for a penny, but you could get five sparrows for two pennies. Boy, I'm really launching there. <laughs> five sparrows for two pennies. And we see, uh, I was reading one commentator who said it was common practice for when you buy two sparrows for that one penny for a third one to be thrown in for free. As if it had no value whatsoever. Here's another sparrow, please take it. 
And I think the question's even relevant to today. We may answer it differently. Are two sparrows worth a penny? Are they for you? I was, uh, I was thinking about this. <laughs> the story came to mind last night. <laughs> we, uh, in Missouri, we, our home, it was uh, one of those uh, split-level homes. And uh, on the front side, you know, there's the garage, and then above the garage was our master bedroom. And that was the highest point from the ground. That was the highest point of the whole house. It was 20-plus feet. And uh, as I think so many of you guys might identify with me, you never have a ladder long enough to reach what you need to reach. And, and what would happen is that our bedroom being right there in that corner, a sparrow would build a nest in our gutters right there on that corner. And I can't tell you how many mornings we would wake up to this wrestling. I'm like, what is that? What is in the walls of our house? Come to find out a sparrow was building its nest right there in the corner. And I, one day I was like, I'm getting rid of this sparrow. All right, it's done. And so I would walk around to the house. It's a 20-foot gutter. And uh, conveniently for me, unconvenient for the sparrow, it would build its nest right on, on top of the downspout. And I would bang <laughs> on, on, the, uh, on the downspout until that sparrow would fall out. And I could tell you uh, multiple times, that sparrow would fall all the way down the downspout and come out just chirping, mad, you know, madder than a hornet, <laughs> and come out. In Missouri, sparrows are so plentiful that, like myself experiencing that nest being built, we don't sell sparrows, we pay to have them removed. <laughs> they're, they're everywhere. And so are two sparrows worth a penny? Absolutely not. Worth nothing. In fact, they lose money, okay? <clears throat> and yet, this is what Jesus says, a seemingly worthless bird. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Not one of them something that we find no value in whatsoever, will fall to the ground apart from God. Our first point under uh, three, point A, is that God rules sovereignly over all creation. I I specifically chose this word rules, right? Because I could have simply said God is sovereign over all creation. We'd all say yes, Yes, he is. We agree with that. But what I wanted to communicate here is that it's not that God is sitting on his throne passively watching the sparrows die. No, God has intimate knowledge, intimate dealings with every one of these sparrows. Not one sparrow falls apart from God. God rules sovereignly over his creation. But verse 30 says, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. We move from a bird that has no worth to you. All your hairs are numbered. It's getting easier for God to count my head as I get older. (laughs) But no less, an amazing, intimate knowledge. You, 
You even think about the number of sparrows there are in the world. I didn't look this up. I don't know if anybody's estimated this, but they're numerous. And to even, even just think, to even understand that God has that intimate knowledge over each individual sparrow, but then we, we move to that to go, no, he has knowledge of every hair on your head. It's amazing. I want you to listen to Psalms 139. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 and then 13 through 16. Psalm of David, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hid me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Point B is that God knows us completely. God knows us completely. And it's not only that he just knows the number of hairs on your head, but he has our days counted. No one can circumvent God and cut your days here on earth early. Verse 31. Fear not, therefore, you are more value of more value than many sparrows. The previous two points lead us to this. If there's a creature that we would consider worthless and it does not escape the gaze of the Father and God knows us so well, knows us intimately, not just who we are, what forms us, what makes us, but knows the days of our lives. And then Jesus says, we are of more value than many sparrows. Monetarily speaking, we're like, well, I'd hope so. (laughs) I mean, it's going to take a lot of sparrows plus a penny (laughs) to get there. But if God cares for the sparrow, how much more would he care for us? That we see in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Then send his son for the sparrow. Sent his son for us. And so point C there is that God loves us. God loves us. So let me review quickly our three reasons not to fear before we get to my last point. 
Number one, we fear not because we have eternity in mind. We do not have to fear our persecutors because God will reveal all to the believer and the unbeliever, to the scoffer and the one scoffed at. Two, we fear not because man is limited in what he can do. We do not take death lightly, but as our first reason points out, we are living with an eternal perspective. And the only right thing or right person to fear is God himself. And we know from Proverbs 1-7 it says that, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What I love, man, I loved it with Peter in front of Jesus. I love with Isaiah in front of the Lord. Even with Job. That when we come into the presence of the Lord with a right perspective of who we are and who he is, he says, fear not. He restores us. The third reason not to fear we fear not because God values his children. And under that point, we found three things. We fear not because God rules sovereignly over all. His ruling is so intimate that not even a measly sparrow goes unnoticed or uncared for. We fear not because God knows us completely. He knows the very numbers of our head. He knows the days of our lives. He knows our needs, our wants, our deepest longings of our souls. We fear not because he loves us. The sparrows get careful attention from their creator. We are more worth more than many sparrows to God. So I want to wrap this up and I want to ask one final question. In light of all this, Jesus has promised persecution. And he has given us reasons not to fear persecution. But it still leaves this question, what is my motivation? All right, despite the promise of persecution and, and Jesus giving us every reason not to fear persecution, what is my motivation to live identified with Christ, boldly proclaiming his gospel? The answer is found in verse 32 and 33. Jesus says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Just picture this with me. You stand before God just as the three men we looked at earlier. And no doubt, we may fall to our faces before the majesty and the glory of our God. And in that moment, we will become very aware of our sin, maybe more so than we have ever been. And despite knowing our sin, you hear Jesus calling out, blameless, faithful, this one suffered with me. Go to the book of Jude he says, Jesus will, in verse 24, Jesus will present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Standing before the Lord, knowing our past, 
and Jesus acknowledging us before the Father. And with great joy, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's an amazing motivation. And the stark reality we see here, the last verse, is that for those who do not acknowledge Christ for who he is, they will stand before God alone. No one to stand in the gap for them. And they will hear, go away, you evildoer, for I never knew you. Guys, it is with that motivation that I say, let us boldly go out. Taking with us what the Lord has whispered to us in the night and proclaiming it on the housetops. Because that message will be a message of life to all who believe and call on the name of the Lord. Let's pray. God, this morning we recognize you to the best of our ability, with our finite minds, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sovereign, all-loving God that you are. Lord, may our view of you continue to rightly reflect who you are. God, would you continue to teach us who you are? And with that knowledge of who you are and what you've done and what you have promised, may we go out this morning with a courage ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. May we share that gospel without fear. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.